We left off last week as we began to transition to the last part of this series of what it means to be in His image. We've got to begin to de develop a biblical worldview. In order to develop a biblical worldview, you have to know what the Bible says. Not just the words that are on the page, but actually what was intended by the guy who wrote the words on the page. In other words, what are they trying to convey to us? And so what happens a lot of times is we take the words on a page and we try to put some spin on it, not necessarily like on purpose, it's just what we know, and put a spin on it so it makes sense in our, our 20, what are we, 21st century Western ears and our understandings of, of what these things mean. And we have to begin to think a little bit differently because those of us who've been brought up in church for any amount of time, uh, you may, maybe you come from a different background than, say, a charismatic church. Not that a charismatic church gets everything right. It doesn't by any means. But, but what church has become is really not what the church was intended, what God intended for his followers and his people. Because a lot of church today, as is, is you guys may well know, depending on how you grew up or where you came from, is you'll go in, you'll stand up, you'll recite something, you'll sit down, candles will be lit, communion will be eventually taken, you'll say the Lord's Prayer, there'll be an 11.5-minute sermon, they call it a homily, You'll stand up, you'll recite something again, you'll sit down, you'll go home. And the question is, is that what God intended when he created mankind? Because that's really what we're getting back to, is what was God's intention when he originally created man? And it says that he fellowshiped with him, correct? Well, is God fellowshipping with us in a mechanical service such as that? No, that's not what it's intended to do. What we're doing is a, a series of rituals that we think pleases God. And these are good-hearted people. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not trying to degrade it. I'm saying, what did God really intend? Because when we're looking at this, we have to begin to look at the life of Christ, who was the express image of the Father. And then he says that you are going to do what I did. So we have to look at that in order to say, okay, what did he intend? And what we've been focusing on here is two concepts. The first part is the abiding in him aspect, and the second part is faith. And in John chapter 15, verse 1, it says that I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them up and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So what we're seeing in the words of Jesus here is how crucial it is of the abiding in him. How is the Father glorified? Through us bearing fruit. What was Jesus doing? Bearing fruit. I do what I see the Father do, I say what I hear the Father say. He was giving us an example of how we are to live our lives. He was constantly going off to pray, constantly separating from the crowd, to spend time intentionally with the Father. Do you know when most people will pray throughout their day, when they do it? Right before they eat. We thank you, Lord, for this food. Please make this Snickers bar nourish me. Please remove the calories from the Reese's peanut butter cups. Like that's, that's when we pray. But do we ever stop and just say, man, what if I'm just aware of God? I'm abiding in him. I'm doing what he wants. See, he's the vine, or the branch. We are the vine. We are, 
We are coming off. We cannot have life outside of him. And think about this. And I want you to think about this for a moment. But many of us have had young people that have gone off to college to go into a field of some sort, whatever it may be. How many people have ever sat in a, at, at, when your child is 16, 17, maybe even 18, and said, I want you to pray and ask God what he wants you to do with the rest of your life, where he wants you to go. Do you know that if I were to ask for a show of hands, it would be a small percentage? Because what we do is we chase after things that seem like we'll enjoy them, because nobody wants a job that they hate going to. It seems like, well, yeah, maybe this is good, but we never stop and ask, okay, God, what do you want from me? Because if we're abiding in him, that means we are serving him, and we ought to be asking him. So what does it mean to abide? Well, it simply means to remain stable or in a fixed state. To abide by the rules, to abide by a decision. And for you and I, we have to live our lives by faith, and that's a problem. Because the reason it's a problem is the fact that we don't know what that word means. We have a series of beliefs that simply say that seeing is believing. If I see it, I'll believe it. That's the opposite of God. And really, that's the opposite of much in the way that you live your life, if you really think it. You believe to see. Because how many times have you gone something in life of which you have never able to see? Good example. Have you ever seen your kidneys? I hope the answer is no. There's one in every crowd. Two in every crowd. Those two share a brain, don't they? They were up here conspiring a little bit ago with Spider-Man figures, so. Of course, I bet they have the same Spider-Man underwear on too, so we're not going to find out, all right? But you think about that, you've never seen it, but yet you believe you have them. Why? Because you know the function of them. You know what they do? If you drink a gallon of water, you're going to find out how they're doing, right? I mean, you think about that, but we've never actually seen them. We have no problem believing in it. Now, I know that's silly, but really that is what it is. Do we see the effects of God? Of course. They would like you to believe that all of this happened by a happy accident, Logically, that's implausible. Not just implausible, it's impossible. But yet they want us to believe that. They say we live by a blind faith, a set of rules and and things that we put on ourselves that doesn't make any sense. Hello, something from nothing. It don't work like that. So we don't see to believe, we believe to see. In order to see, what must we do? We have to abide. We have to follow the lineage of those who come before And this is another area of which we struggle. Because those who came before usually have some wisdom. If you've been uh, around on uh, Wednesday nights going through Job, we've learned how good Job's friends are, how smart they are, and how they have all the answers. And in fact, there's a a fourth one that's about to jump in there, and he's really smart. So it's about to get really good. But the fourth one holds back because he's younger than the rest. He's like, I was letting you guys go because you're smarter, but you obviously ain't getting through. So let me show you how this is done. It doesn't end well for him. When we think about this, we reject those who came before. We're like, oh, I'm just going to do this my way. But we don't go back and look, and we don't read in the page of Scripture that these were just normal people living their lives, and God intervened in their life in one way or another, and then we see all these crazy things that happen, and we're like, God, I want that. You, there's nothing special about them. They were just guys. But what did they do different? It was always up here, abiding in Him. 
In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. So we believe to see. By it, the elders obtained a good testimony. And by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. But by faith, Enoch was taken away, so he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Does he reward those who diligently seek him? Of course he does. The question is, how many people are diligently seeking him? This is the abiding piece. See, we talk faith. We don't live faith. We talk a good game, we don't live a good game. And I'm not even talking morality. Let's just take that off the table for a moment. The reality is we don't trust God because we don't need to. Our daily provisions are met. Ain't nobody in here going hungry. You have a health problem, you got a doctor. You can't pay for it, somebody will. You can't afford your rent, somebody will be there. There's, there's programs, you ain't got enough food, there's, progr- there's programs for everything. So we don't need God. And that was what Moses was telling the Israelites in Deuteronomy. They're getting ready, he said, don't forget, you didn't build that house. You didn't dig that well. You didn't plant that vineyard. That was all done. God is giving this to you. Don't forget him. And what do they do? They forgot. What do we do? We forget This is the problem. See, it's not a matter of just simply waiting for God to do something. God's waiting for us to do something. How do we know? Because in the book of James, it's very clear. I want to show you this. We read this last week. James chapter 2, verse 14. It says, What is a prophet, my brother, and if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them things that which are needed for the body, what is it profit? Thus also by faith, or faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now do you understand that? It is not saying you work for your salvation. It's saying as a result of your salvation, it's clearly demonstrated through what you do. Because if you have the love of Christ and you really do see a brother or a sister who is naked and destitute of daily food, a true believer will have no problem stepping in and helping. No problem. They won't just type on Facebook prayers. They'll actually pray. It says brother and sister. This is talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord, okay? This isn't just arbitrarily to everybody. You can do that if you want. But what I'm saying here is we demonstrate our faith. Our faith is demonstrated. But someone, verse 18, will say, you have faith and I have work. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now let's stop for a second. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. So in other words, if I tell you I believe something, the works that I do, the things I do, the way I live my life, We'll back that up. We just prayed for Jim to be healed and Chris to be healed. Why do we do that? Because we believe what the Word of God says. And we stand on that. So we have no problem doing it. 
Why do we take communion? Because we believe what the Word of God says. We stand by that, and therefore we do it. Why do we gather together? Because we believe what the Word of God says, we stand on that, and we do it. Why do we give money away, which is contrary to everything this world would tell you to do? Because we believe what the Word of God says, and we stand on it, therefore we do it. And we could go on and on and on. It's, I will show you my faith by my works. You will not have to ask where I stand on it because you will know based on what I do. I use that illustration that if you put on a bulletproof vest and someone pulls a gun on you, if you have faith in the vest that it will stop the bullet, you are not worried. If you do not, you are worried. That's the difference. The difference is I have no problem believing what God said because he who promised is faithful. Therefore, I will stand on his word. And if for some reason, the circumstances and the outcome do not match what I believe, then I begin to question, where am I? Not God. Because I'm the moving target, not him. Just like all of us, I have areas to grow too. And so when I get something wrong, I want to not get it wrong twice. I want to grow. I want to learn. I want to make sure I'm, I'm pressing into what God has. So, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. Let's go to verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead so faith without works is dead also. Now we went through a couple of those and looked at why did Abraham do it? Because he knew that God was able to raise him up. Why did Rahab do it? How do we know that she believed? Because she'd heard of what happened with the Egyptians. She believed their word, and they hid where they told her to. And she was counted to her righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 11, we call this the hall of faith, right? You've got by faith Abraham, by faith Enoch, by faith Isaac, by faith this person, that person. It goes on and on and on. Here's the question. It's a sampling of people who believed God, and as a result of their belief, they did something. They lived their lives in a certain way. But if we were to take members of this church and maybe some surrounding community and friends, and we were going to build a hall of faith, what would it look like? By faith, they talked a big game. They didn't live it out. If we really believe that the Lord is returning at any moment, then why are we so haphazard in our evangelism? Why are we not talking to people and developing relationships? Why are we not out there reaching the lost? If we really believe that any moment, why are we not reaching out to our family members? Why are we not doing these things? Because if Jesus returned today and the rapture actually took place and he took away all the Christians, where does that leave your family that you love? Not with you. Because we don't know what tomorrow brings. See, we live our lives to please us and not him. So as we read in James 2, faith without works is dead. Put it this way. Faith without works is talk. That's all it is. I'll give you an example of this. So when I went, we went to Rama, we had a, uh, I had a friend of mine who played floor hockey. Okay? He was Canadian. <laughs> right? Enough said. Yeah, he always had maple syrup on his hands. It was weird. Anyway. But one of the people there who was related 
to the founder of the school, I'll just put it that way, liked to play floor hockey. And he had the best stick, he had the best pads, he had the best helmet, I mean he had the best of everything. He walked on the court and looked the part. The problem was he might have been the worst floor hockey player to ever play the game. So he looked really good until it was time to put your money where your mouth is. And then he got picked last in gym class, apparently. That's the church. We portray ourselves as something that we're not living. I don't want to get hung up on that. So James chapter 2. Faith without works is dead. Let's go to James chapter 1 and catch the entirety of this context here. I'm going to show you guys something today. We're talking about living by faith. We showed how Jesus lived by faith. We showed how a few of the Old Testament folks lived by faith. What about you and I? What about the New Testament? James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. So who's he writing this to? 12 tribes. Okay? This is Israel. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. How many of you guys want your faith tested today? Me neither. Some of you guys will when you watch that game at 2 o'clock. Have your faith tested. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You know, I remember as a young person reading that verse. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In other words, I want to be smarter. So where would be a good place to be smarter at? When I got to take a test, and I remember them teaching this in children's church. I said, okay, let him ask God. So I went in there to take a test. I think it was in the fourth grade-ish, third, fourth grade. I was a challenge for my children's church instructor. You're grateful you didn't have me. She is grateful. So she, she taught us this. I was like, all right. So I go in to take this test. I said, Lord, I need wisdom so I can do well on this test so that I don't have to do extra work. So the Lord help me. Amen. And they gave me that test, and I was confident. I took the test, and I graded the test, and I handed it back. And I failed miserably, which is pretty typical. So I was guns ablazing the next Sunday. I said, you know what, Ruth? I prayed, and I failed. She said, did you study? <laughs> Didn't say I had to. <laughs> I said, let me ask God. She's like, you still have to study. I don't like that. So I learned. I learned. Let him ask God, who gives all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So now we're kind of getting a glimpse into what this means. Let him ask, trusting God, not doubting, not wondering, not hoping, but trusting. Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. In other words, does the wave have any say in which way it goes when the wind is blowing? No. It goes whichever way happens to be blown to in the moment. Let not that man suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded and unstable. 
So in other words, if we, our actions don't match our words, are we double-minded? Are we unstable? According to James, we are. Let's go on. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers in the grass. Its flowers falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we're talking about what faith does. Blesses the man who endures temptation because God has promised and it will bring us through and we will see what the Lord has promised. And let's go verse 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. He observes himself, goes away and forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, does not bridle his tongue, but deceives, he deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Why would you do that? Because you believe God's word. So in other words, to be a doer of the word and not simply a hearer means that you are doing what you say you believe. You're not just talking. You're not just looking the part. Your actions match it. That you're ridiculously generous with the resources that God has provided. You're ridiculously generous with your time and those who maybe are unfortunate. You're ridiculously brokenhearted over the loss and those hurting because so is God. You're ridiculously moved by God to lay hands on the sick because you know that believers lay hands on the sick and they recover. You have no problem being obedient to God's word because you're not just simply a hearer. You're not just simply a talker. You are living your life abiding in him to the fullness of all that he has. Do you guys see the difference? This is the difference. The guys that we read about. In the New Testament, we're like, God, I just want to see a move like that. I want to see things like that. You know what you don't see is the time spent with God individually. Where their life revolved around the work of the Lord and the life of the Lord and doing what God wanted. Instead of seeking their own desire. You know, those fishermen before Jesus picked them probably lived an okay life. And you know what the privilege they got as a result? Gruesome death. Sign me up. This is the problem. We're seeking our desires. We never ask, God, what do you want? How do you want me to live? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? 
we simply live our lives to please ourselves. Now, let's look at a couple of examples of this. Of faith in action. I want to show you guys this. These are passages you're certainly familiar with, but I want you to see them. Because it's so important that we catch what's happening and how this applies to our life. Because anything that takes place in Scripture is at least on the table for you. Let's go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 5. It's a story of a centurion. You guys know what that is. Now Jesus, verse 5, had entered Capernaum. A centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now, let's stop. A centurion is a Roman soldier, not a Jewish person. You need to know that. This is a man in charge of uh, several hundred people, likely. Okay? He's a Roman soldier. His servant, not his family member, not his child, but somebody who works for him, paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. We don't know what the deal is. We assume something demonic is going on, but we don't really know. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. Now stop. Why is he not worthy that you should come under his roof? Because no Jew would go into a Roman soldier or any Gentile's house ever. It makes you unclean. They were to be separated. At least that's what the belief, and this guy knew it. Verse 9, for I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. Don't you wish your children did that? When Jesus heard it, he marveled. A centurion, a Roman soldier made Jesus marvel. Said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Should they have in Israel? Absolutely. That's who he was sent to. But here it takes. He doesn't say that about anybody else. He marveled at the belief that this man had. I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. That man went out of his way to seek the one who could bring hope and healing to his servant, a Roman soldier. Let's look at another one. Mark chapter 4. Verse 35, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat, and he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, and he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, teach you, do you not care that we are perishing, that we are dying? And he arose, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind, wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? So now he gets on to them. Why did he get on? How can you have no faith? Why are you fearful? We now see that those are opposites. So if they're afraid of what's happening to them, they're not trusting God in the boat. Examples of faith. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. It says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get in a boat and go before him on the other side, and he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Why did he do that? Spend time with the Father. Now when evening came, 
He was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went with them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous and he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those who were on the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So you see the difference. He trusted Jesus' word to come. He went. But then he began to look around and he sank. He did not trust God's word. What I'm trying to show you is if you believe, you will act. Did he act? Absolutely. But was he moved by the circumstances shortly thereafter? Absolutely. See, this is the common denominator amongst what we call faith. Mark chapter 2. Another story that you guys are familiar with. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even the door, near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when he had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they had reasoned this within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to you? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. And so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, where's the faith in demonstration? They knew that if we get this man to Jesus, he'd walk. They knew it. They're willing to go to great lengths to make that happen. It's no different if, if you know of somebody with a medical condition and they'll travel to various parts of the country or around the world in order to make sure they get to the best surgeon, the best doctor, because they have faith in that doctor. That's what these guys are doing. They knew who had the answer. They were willing to do whatever it takes. So did their talk and their actions line up? Yeah. Thus far, what you'll notice is that just like the Roman soldier and just like these guys and everybody else, they didn't just talk. They were willing to do whatever it took to make it happen. Now, let's look at one more. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5. This is the story about the woman with the issue of blood, all of which we're familiar with. And I've taught on this before, but it's good to re rehash some of this stuff because I want you to see something here. It's so crucial because there's a misunderstanding that happens in this passage. Mark chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And had suffered many things from many physicians, and spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, why did she spend all that she had? Because she believed that if I go to the doctors, if I just keep maybe one more, maybe this guy, maybe that guy, I will be better. So she was willing to give up all of her money in order to find well-being. Fair enough? Okay. 
When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around to the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing, but the woman... Fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So he brings up her faith. Now, doesn't give us a lot of details other than she was willing. She said, If I may only touch his clothes, I'll be made well. And this has been taught incorrectly for generations because it's been taught in the fact that you just put your faith in anything and God will meet you where it's at. I'm going to show you that that's not the case here. It's actually deeper than that. Luke gives us a little bit more information. Let's go to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 41. Same story, a few different details. And behold, there came a man from, named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had, uh, he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitude thronged him. Here we go. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed any, came from behind and touched the border of his gar garment. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitude throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out of me. For now when the woman had, uh, saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said, her daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Out comes the same, but there's one distinction here. She touched the hem of his garment. Now what does that mean? That means nothing to us. Okay? It's not the hem of the dress. It actually, was what this is talking about here is, is talking about what we call a tzitzit. Okay? There were these tassels. There were these tassels that they would wear at the hem of the garment. This is a talit. It's a prayer shawl. Some of you guys are familiar with these. Okay? And a tzitzit is essentially this. They would wear two on each side. You'll, sometimes you'll see people that will wear these on their hips nowadays. Usually they might be messianic. There's a Hebrew roots movement that's been making this popular because they don't understand everything. But what this is, is a symbol of the Levitical law. I and mean, we'll, we'll see this in Numbers chapter 15. It says, verse 37, it says, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generation and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel and may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined, and that you remember to do and do all my commandments and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So that's what this is talking about. Now, this became later with these prayer shawls, these talids, but this would be something when you see David cutting off uh, the hem of Saul and all of that, this would have been what it was talking about. So it was a commandment that they were to wear these, and certainly Jesus would have had these as the hem. So we know that she touched the hem of her garment. She knew that if she only does that, she would be made well. Now, what's so unique about these is there's four of them, as I said. And the term zitzit, in case you want to know how to spell that, it's T-Z-I-Z-I-T. No, T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. Zit, zit, I don't know. Whatever. Anyway. 
But there's something called the gematria, which is a numerical system. Every Hebrew letter represents a number. And when you add up the zitzit in Hebrew, whatever that word is, it'd be a lot of phlegm in it, I'm sure, it comes to 600, okay? Now, you've got eight individual strings with five knots. Eight plus five is what, Isaac? Very good. Whew, I was sweating there for a minute. 13 plus 600 is what? 613. I took care of that one for you. How many Levitical laws were there? 613. That's what it was. Now, when we look at this, it means nothing to you and I. But there's something unique because of what the words mean when it talks about him. I've got this definition here. When you look at the Greek word, when it talks about him, it's the Greek word, I'm going to say this, napsodon. Something like it sounds like a bad dinosaur. But it certainly will mean edge and him, and you can see that there. But what do you notice it keeps saying the big definition is? It's wings. Wings. Okay? Well, why does that matter? Why do we care? Well, the reason we care is because there's actually something unique that's going on here. There was a prophecy. Now, these people would have been familiar with the prophets because they would have read them in the synagogues all the time. And so, just like you and I, we have prophets today that we'll listen to. They, the school of the prophets were people studying prophecies, not being trained to be prophets, but studying prophecies. There's no difference here. There's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. It's in verse 2, it says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise. Now, that is a messianic term with healing in his wings. And you should go out and grow fat. Like stalled calves. Now, when she read that prophecy, or knew of that prophecy, why did she go and touch the hem of his garment? Because there'd be healing in the hem of his garment when Messiah came. That means that she believed that he was Messiah and knew that when he came, I can find wellness there. And she was willing to do anything to get it. Flow of blood means she's unclean means she's not supposed to be in public, means anybody who touched her would be unclean. There is a reason that Jewish men would never touch any women whatsoever because if it was their monthly time or near it, that alone would make them unclean. She was willing to risk it all because she believed what the prophets had said and accepted that Jesus was the Messiah. Do you guys see that? That's what makes this so powerful. It's not just arbitrary, hey, if I just do this or whatever. It's literally believing what the prophets had said about Messiah. Of course, of course, yeah, she was an Israelite. It wasn't the only time that this happened. If you look in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, 53, it says, When they had crossed over, and they came to the land of the Gennesaret, and anchored there, and when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. They recognized Jesus. They ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry, out, uh, carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Why would they do that? Because they knew Jesus was the healer. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, and the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. It's not an isolated event. What I'm telling you is that she had read and heard the prophecies of Malachi, believed that they were so, believed that Jesus was Messiah, and was willing to do anything to get to him. 
because there she would find wholeness. The same with these people. In other words, her actions matched her talk. We're going to build upon that next week. But what we need to understand here is that talking faith and living faith are not one and the same. We have too much talk, not enough action. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you, Lord, that we can depend on every promise that you've made because he who promises is faithful. And we thank you, Lord, for your provisions and all that you've given us. Lord, I thank you that we're ever growing in our understanding of you and our faith and our trust in you because you alone are all that matters. That we may abide in you and live our lives to the fullness in you and never take a moment for granted that you're glorified in everything that we say and do. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week. We'll see you Wednesday. Oh, yeah, we got that meeting right after. I almost forgot. <laughs> hey, don't leave.